This sermon is from the new series, Overcoming Evil. We hope and pray that this message will deepen your love for Jesus and give you the courage to overcome evil with good. But this morning, I want to I go a little bit deeper with you here. And I want us to look at in John chapter number 13. This will be a text of the life of Christ. It says in John 13 verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, he loved his own which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself after that he had poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now you all can settle down. We're not going to have foot washing here this morning, okay? However, I did tell some people yesterday that you might want to clean them up really good because we're gonna, everyone's going to see each other's feet. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you got really nervous there. But uh, this morning, I want to I, I preach on what type of people you and I should love. Let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, for uh, the power of it and how, uh, Lord, it has been on display in the life of our church uh, these, uh, these months of the new year. And God, I'm so thankful for that. And Father, I pray that as we look in on really Jesus Christ's last day and last night uh, where he would be with the people that he so loved, Lord, help us to glean from our Savior. Help us to glean from our hero and our King, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts. I believe, uh, Lord, the singing and uh, being even sung to has prepared that. And uh, God, I pray that you would get uh, maximum glory for all that is said and done here this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love to love people that are easy to love. You know, those that are, those that are easy to love. I prefer to show love in ways that I can control the way that they think about me. Sometimes I wish that I could just tell it like it is in the name of love, but in all reality, I'm being hurtful and I'm being unwise. Jesus, however, he blows all of these desires sometimes that I have. He completely blows them out of the water. And to be honest with you, that is a very good thing. As I have learned from Jesus on the last night of his life, I see him do the exact opposite of my natural desires. I see him love those that are not easy to love. Jesus in his last hours here, he's not surrounded by a comforting and a supportive group right before he dies. That's not what this group is. His crew is infiltrated with personal agendas and self-centeredness. Yet he does not address the obvious sins that are in the room in this uh, Last Supper. I can only imagine how I would have handled the disciples 
I can just imagine if I would have handled a Judas that would have later been the one that was going to betray me. My mouth probably would have laid it all out for myself and I would have looked in the right and they would have looked in the wrong. Have you ever been in a scenario like that where you kind of you kind of measure things and you think, okay, if I say this and I do this, I'll come out looking like the hero. Sometimes I do that. And yet that's not what Jesus is doing here. He is extremely different. It says in verse number one again of our text, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. Jesus chose the opposite of controlling the situation for his own good. He leads his disciples with love and he does not protect himself from shame. Jesus does not protect himself from powerlessness or even hurt in the hours that will come. Jesus loves, hear me, he loves in a lowly way through humiliating service. Once you let this statement sink in, the God-man washes the feet of the infuriating disciples in a loincloth like the most unworthy of slaves. Jesus, who was 100% God as well as 100% man on this last night that he was spending with those that he loved, literally took a job of the house slave, of the humiliating job of someone that would literally have to wash each other's feet. And so what types of people does King Jesus display his love towards? When you look at this text, you find find several types of people. Let me say, first of all, Jesus loves the deceitful. He loves the deceitful. The opening verses here of chapter number 13 tells us that he knows his future. Jesus knows that these are his last days. He knows that he's getting ready to humanly die and go unto the Father. And so Jesus, he he knows his future. He knows his identity. He knows that he came from the Father and he's going to come back from the Father. Jesus in this text, he even even knows that he's in authority. We see in verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil, having not put into the heart of Judas Iscariot now, excuse me, put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. What authority. Jesus, let me just humanize it here for you. Let Let me talk in your vernacular here. Jesus knows he's the man. Jesus knows he's the he's the top of the food chain. And you continue here, and it says, and that he was come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper, verse 4, and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. With that kind of introduction, the one that can see the future, with the one that has all power and all authority from God the Father, the one that understood his identity, you would think with all of the clarity that he knew what was going on in Judas's mind, that you would expect that, that, that Jesus would take matters into his own hands. He has all power. He knows all things. 
He knows that the some that are the one that is the closest to him is literally about to kill him. One that had prayed with him. One that had eaten with him. One that had literally slept most likely at some point right next to him. He knew there was a man that was in the room that was getting ready to have him killed. And Jesus, with the depths of betrayal, Right near him. I mean, imagine how that would have felt. Someone that you love so dearly is getting ready to have you killed. Let me say this. Love wills to walk into humiliation, shame, and the lowest place. You want to love like we've talked about? We've, we're, we're talking about the church uh, the, the church is there at Rome. The Apostle Paul is writing to, in, in, in the text of our, of our series of overcoming evil, to men and women that have gone through the, the, the excesses of Caligula, to now a, the nightmare of Nero, where he literally had Rome burned, and now he's calling the Christians for the reason why it was burned. They're literally being killed. They're being boiled. They're being used as lanterns. And God says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes at the end of chapter 12 of Romans, he says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And then we start in verse number 12, and it starts with the idea of love. And you and I, if we are going to have this radical love in a world that is very much like Rome was in that first century, very much so, then you and I, we're going to have to be willing to be humiliated. We're going to have to be willing to go through some shame. We're going to have to be willing to even take, at times, the lowest of places. Now, I'll be honest with you, we can almost imagine the kind of the alternative scene, right? Jesus comes and he confronts Judas in anger. Oh, righteous anger, might I add. And what does he do? He would turn the tables on that betrayer. I mean, you could see that happen, right? That's what I would have done. If I'd have known someone was in the room, they're getting ready to kill me, I wouldn't have just let it happen. But instead, we see Jesus strip off his outer clothes, take up a towel and water, and he puts it in a basin to get ready to wash feet. He kneels in front of the disciples, and some historians and some theologians believe that Jesus possibly would have washed Judas' feet first. I don't know if the text doesn't necessarily say that, but it's a possibility. But Jesus would have gone through these 12 disciples, and ultimately he would have gotten to the very feet of his betrayer, and he washes his feet. It's very probable that no one in the room, none of these men probably had ever washed feet of anyone else before. And the reason why is because it was such a lowly task. It was associated with the lowest in rank in the home. Oftentimes it would have been kind of a servant, also known sometimes even as slaves. Many, many, many times it would have been a Gentile woman that would have been there and she would have been the one that would have washed feet. Now, I'm not going to take my shoes off for you because I have nasty feet. You'll just have to trust me on that, okay? But listen, my feet are clean compared to these disciples. They would have been wearing sandals. And I had the privilege a couple of Octobers ago uh, to go to the Holy Land. And it's desert everywhere. Their feet would have been nasty. They would have been dirty. And so these disciples, most likely, they would have never been a person to ever have washed these people's feet. 
Yet here's Jesus washing feet. This would not have been my first inclination. I probably would have tried to fix the problem. I probably would have called it like I saw it. I probably, in my self-righteousness and uh, decisiveness, I probably, Brother Weaver, would have humiliated Judas. But instead, Jesus becomes humiliation. He took it from even his betrayer. He said, no, no, I'll step into the arena of being willing to be humiliated. I will be willing to serve. Listen, Jesus loved in a lowly way. This is a high call here this morning. But if you and I are going to be able to overcome this evil that we've been learning about the last couple weeks, then you and I, we're going to have to understand what this real type of love is. It's a, it's a lowly type of love. And so Jesus, he loves the deceitful. He, he loved Judas, the one that would have been lying for a long time, getting real close into Jesus. Let me say secondly, Jesus loves the arrogant. He loves the arrogant. The disciples, they kind of, by this time, they had, they had a certain era about them, and it wasn't always a good one. With the help of their mom, James and John, they literally had asked if they could have, you know, the top spots in Jesus' kingdom. We read in Matthew 20, verse 21, and he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, this is James and John, the one on the right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. I mean, you know, can you imagine? I mean, you know, moms want the best for their kids, right? Come on, amen, moms. You want the best for your kids, okay? And so, you know, they're kind of, she's kind of jockeying with Jesus here, kind of jockeying with the, you know, uh, in the kingdom and said, hey, you know, you know how much James and John, you know how much they love you, they followed you, they've served you. I realize I'm giving you Johnson version, but it's all in there, okay? And she, he come, she comes along and says, can, can they sit on either, either side of you? You know, with help of mama who loves their kids. I'm not, I'm not bashing on mama here. And then there's another time when Peter, he comes along and, and he comes to Jesus and says, and he answered and said unto him, though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. This is if Jesus, he tell, or Peter tells Jesus, hey, listen, I mean, everybody else, they're just like lame Christians, but I'm the best. Okay? I'm... I'm never going to be offended by you. Well, you and I, we have the Bible. We know the rest of the story, don't we? But he's kind of, he's jockeying there for, for, for position. Clearly, his perspective is, well, you know what? Everybody else is a little bit less spiritual than me. Thus, I'm not going to, you know, I, I, I'm not going to forsake you. And then, not in John, but in this very same night, you have men that are, jockeying for position in Luke 22, and there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? Hear me. Hands down, these were incredibly self-exalting and proud men. Now, before we crucify them here this morning, how many times are we not very self-exalting and proud men and women. You're looking at one right here. There's times in my life where rather than being willing to take the, the lowly side of loving, 
Instead, I want to try to paint myself as the one that hasn't done anything wrong. And you can nail somebody else against the wall. But Jesus, he's different. He's our king, and I love him. Thankful for his substitutionary life that he lived for us. He sought a love in a lowly fashion. The disciples were seeking honor in their great, for their greatness, while Jesus could have reminded them of how much better he was. He didn't. I would have at least reminded them of their place. Instead, Jesus loved them. Though they were seeking honor with all of their might, Jesus chose shame as he performed some of the lowest tasks. And it shocks them to the horror that, 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 that their Savior, their Messiah, the one that they had traveled along with and had believed and followed for some three and a half years now, that he would take this lowest state of washing feet. So Jesus loves the deceitful. He loved Judas. Jesus loves these disciples who at times could be very, very arrogant. But can I also say that Jesus loves the overbearing. Peter was one to kind of expose his, his horror or his, his angst for what Jesus did. And he did, it, he did it out loud. Do you ever say something that you're not supposed to say? I mean, come on. How many of you, you say, that's me. That's, that's Peter. So often in the Bible, he says things that he should have, should have never said. He says in our text, verse number six, then cometh he to Simon Peter. Everybody okay this morning? I'll try to, I'll try to rescue here in a moment with Jesus. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, doest thou, dost, excuse me, thou wash my feet. Now, if you were to read it, starting in verse 1, and you were to continue through the text, and you kind of get the context, Peter's really not asking a question here, okay? Peter's trying to, you know, what he's trying to do is he's trying to control the situation. He's trying to be this overbearing person that, you know, he didn't think that Jesus should be washing his feet, and so his discomfort showed itself and a strong prohibition. He says, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. Verse number seven, Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know after, hereafter. But Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, if you study the gospels, you find that Peter often liked to talk back to Jesus. He liked to. He's like, no, 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 I know what's best, you know. And he would often, he would talk back to the Messiah. Now listen, you and I, sometimes we talk back to God, don't we? Sometimes we begin to think, no, God, I'm not doing that. He tells you to do something. He says, hey, I want you to go here. He says, I want you to give this. He says, I want you to help with this project or help this person. We start saying, no, God, don't you know who I am? No, 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 no way. That person's not worthy of this money. This person, that person's not worthy of this act of service. There's no way. And sometimes I talk back to God. I hope you can admit that too. Don't sit there and act like we don't. Sometimes we have these conversations with God. And so Peter, he's doing the very same thing here. He definitely believes that Jesus is the Messiah. But apparently he also believes that he needs some training. He needs some shaping from his humanly wisdom. And so he says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna try to control the situation. Jesus, you're not washing my feet. There's no need to. You're not washing it. And my desire, I would have probably handled the opposition with, I would have encouraged Peter to step in line. I'd have encouraged him saying, don't you know who I am? And yet, Jesus, he 
gives him a statement that includes the consequences of not allowing him, Jesus, to wash Peter's feet. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. See, Jesus, in a lowly fashion, he loved him. And he continued to put himself at the bottom. And he kneeled with water and a towel. You want to know what my natural response to deceit is? My natural response to arrogance? My natural response to an overbearing action? would be to take control of the situation and to set them straight. And there's certainly times to address attitudes like this, but that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't, he doesn't take time at this moment with his disciples. He, instead, he shows them his character. He shows them his mission. He shows them his act of humiliation in, in order to show this service and this cleansing that someday, actually just within the next day or so, he was going to give of his life on the cross. And he's saying, hey Peter, if you don't allow me to do this symbolic washing, there is never going to be any spiritual washing in your life. There's never going to be any washing away of your sin. And so Jesus is he's foretelling what is going to happen. And we see in Philippians 2, verse 1, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves." Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. Listen, God became man and God became obedient. And then verse number 8, James, sorry, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is the kind of mind that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same one that penned uh, in, in Romans chapter 12, saying, listen, you're going to have to have this kind of mind. This mind that is of a lowly nature, this mind that, that, that will allow yourself to take a back seat to somebody else. You and I, hear me this morning, we are called to love in a fashion like this. Just after Jesus washes their feet, he gets up again and he begins to explain, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash another's feet. I'm not going to wash anybody's feet here this morning. And everybody said, Amen. Okay. But I want you to, I want you to kind of try to, try to picture that, picture that night. We're just going to take water from the baptistry. Okay, it was nice and warm.
you bring somebody up next to you, and they got some nasty, dirty feet, and you're willing to kneel down before them, maybe take off your outer coat like Jesus would have done, the outer robe, gird yourself up, and take a cloth and begin to wash nasty, dirty, stinky feet. Is that something that you would ever do? Let me ask you it a different way. Do you believe that love wills to walk into humiliation, shame, and the lowest place? I believe the meaning here of John 13 is bigger than just, bigger than the feet. I think what we learn here from our Savior is that you and I, if we're going to love properly, we're going to have to love everybody. You go back to Romans 12 and it says that you and I, we ought to love without dissimulation, love genuinely. Not, well, okay, I'm going to love you, yeah, because you can offer me something. Well... No, 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 you can't really, you can't really offer me anything in return. So, you know what? I'll just, I'll just let your feet stink. But symbolically, what is it in your life that God is calling you to? How is He asking you to love somebody else? See, the hard truth is that costly love does lead to those things: humiliation, sometimes shame and the lowest of places. Because this is so hard, this message is weighty, this message is so hard, you and I hear me, we can only love this way when we've first been washed, when we've first been served, when we've first been loved ourselves by Jesus. First John chapter 4, verse 10 says, Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He first loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John is describing here, he's saying, hey, you want to know what love looks like? Here in His love, here's the definition of love. He says it was the Son being the propitiation for your sins. Can I, can I just put that in a synopsis? It looks right like that. A cross. Paul Tripp says, it says, love is best defined by an initiative. God's willingness to satisfy his own anger by offering his son as a sacrifice that would atone for our sins. See, our definition here this morning of love must be nothing less than the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your life, my life, must be shaped by a cross-type love. Cruciform love. That ought to make you feel uncomfortable. It should. Take the word cruciform. You know what it means? It means in the shape of a cross. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart is filled, honestly, with grief because in and of myself, I cannot love this way. Hence, I was loved. Hence, I was served. Hence, Jesus came and he loved me with this great love so that now I can live in this love. 
this definition of cruciform love should produce in you a sense of self-awareness. You have to be aware that your heart is in and of itself not capable of this. If, if, if I describe a love that looks like a cross and you think, okay, well, you know, I'm good with that. I do that every day. We ought to take a step back. You love selflessly? You love at the expense of everything that you have for somebody else? That's our call this morning. Jesus says, in the same manner in which I've washed your feet, you go wash feet. Can I interpret that for you? The way I've loved you, you love others. What I say last week, the only reason why we can love an evil world around us is because we've been loved. Because Jesus loves you. Because Jesus loves me. This definition should produce a sense of need. Once you're aware of your condition, you know that you need help. And you know where to run to get that help. Produces in you and me a hunger for grace. Oh, that we would desire to be a person that is shaped by this type of love. Love that only grace can produce. It's a cross-like love. And you and I, you know what our call should be here in a moment? God, help me to love like that, and he will. But he might take you to a place where you might feel humiliated. He might take you to a place where you might have to feel a little bit of shame. But know this, Jesus did all that for you, for your benefit, so that we then can go live in this. Since Jesus has loved us in our selfish agenda, since Jesus has loved us in our arrogance and our controlling behavior, we can go love others like that too. Church family, the gospel calls you to this type of love. And this type of love overcomes evil. This type of love is what changes a dynamic. Listen, Rome was built and it was conquered. Hear me, the church is still alive today. It was brutal to live for God in the day of Rome when Nero was in power, when they were killing Christians, and it is brutal today to live for God. But listen, the church is still in power. Why? Because Jesus is still on the throne. We sang about it here this morning. Jesus is living inside of you. If you know Christ as your Savior, through the person of the Holy Spirit, and he can empower you to love in this fashion. What does it look like to love like Jesus? Sometimes what it means is it means that you literally get down on one knee and you, in a humble, in a lowly way, serve somebody that can do absolutely nothing for you. Church family, let's begin to pray that God will help us to love like this in our church. Affectioned, brotherly love one to another. And then this is like an incubator where we can learn how to love one another in this room. My, we ought to love one another in this room. Why? Because when we go out in the world, it's not like this place. It's darker, it's colder, it's more evil. And so you and I, God, help me to love the way that I should love in this room. And it will begin to spill out into a world around us. And I promise you, according to Paul, you and I will begin to overcome the evil that has maybe been brought into our lives and maybe the evil that is around us.
Holy Spirit led me to look in on this text because I felt like we needed to really understand the love that we were called to last week. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, it starts there. His love for you, that he would die on a cross and he would pay for your sins. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, for the power that we have in it. And Lord, I pray that God, you would please, Lord, you would do a mighty work 